please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke will be starting a new series uh, today. Uh, I'm going to note up front that last week I I told you to read a slightly different section uh, than we're going to read today. Uh, What I've decided to do is, um, the way Luke records things is he talks about the enunciation of John's birth uh, and, and Zechariah's response, and then the enunciation of Jesus' birth, and Mary's response, and then the birth of John, and then the birth of Jesus. And I've d- decided just let's just deal with John this week, uh, and uh, and then we'll return to the enunciation of Jesus' birth next week, Lord willing. So um, I'm going to read this this section today in se- uh, in parts. I'm going to start with verses one through seventeen, Luke chapter one, verses one through seventeen. Uh, beloved saints. Now, this is God's Word. Let us give our attention to the reading of it this morning. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having also followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when the division, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's uh, end our reading of God's Word at uh, this point right there and, and ask that He would be with us as we turn our attention to His Word. Our most gracious Lord, You know our hearts. They are prone to wander. You know our minds. They are slow to understand. You know us, that we are not by nature people of Your Word. And so we ask that you would be among us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear 
this your most holy truth. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. The human body is amazing. Uh, In one sense, it's a multitude of parts and systems and subsystems, thousands if not millions of individual parts, each with a specific job, each with a specific function. And yet in another sense, it is a single unified whole. All those individual parts working together, each doing their part, each depending on and helping the other. And so the the body only works when the parts are doing their job, when they are working together. But sometimes one of those parts becomes detached. A detached retina a retina will cause you to lose your vision. A detached tendon will render your muscle completely useless, and so on. To be a fully functioning body, the parts have to be connected. Not just working together, but attached and connected to one another. The same thing is true in spiritual things. God has told us that what you believe is important. But if it is detached from the heart, then we are in major trouble. The history of God's people is full of those who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. He's warned us that on the last day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do this? Did we not do that in your name? Didn't we not do all these great things? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Your hearts were far from me. Now, it's easy to use examples of extreme hypocrisy to comfort our own hearts and minds. We don't have to look far because the news parades these people for us. Those spiritual leaders who get caught in deep, moral failure, those obvious uh, uh, salesmen who, who don't really believe anything but are just manipulating people for their own gain. And the temptation is to say, I thank God that I am nothing like them, and then return to our comfortable existence. But the heart is a funny thing, because the heart can do nothing from a safe distance. The heart... Uh, is not like the mind. The mind can ponder uh, distant realities with a sort of detached curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. Let's think about that and then go have lunch. But the heart is either all in or all out. The heart is where commitment is found. It's from the heart that, that love and hate pour forth. And so the heart can never keep a safe distance. What do we tell young people? Not guard your mind or guard your heart because it is powerful. It is strong. And so it is the heart that is most vulnerable to pain. 
or temptation is to keep God at a safe distance. To talk about his truths, his doctrines, and how various philosophies deal with the big questions in life. We can wax eloquent about how our society needs a a firm foundation in the Judeo-Christian ethic and how the removal of, of God and prayer from our schools and our courts has led to the downfall of society. We can memorize fancy doctrines and maybe even Latin phrases. We can teach Sunday school and write books. But if our hearts are detached from all of this, We are noisy symbols. We are clanging gongs. And it is all for nothing. It is all worthless. If our hearts are detached, we are deceiving only ourselves. Now, the dirty secret of real life is that most of us are neither those manipulative salesmen uh, and neither are we fully committed devoted disciples, the reality is that most of us are somewhere in between. That we struggle to keep our hearts and minds connected on a daily basis. And it's a battle. The Gospel of Luke is written in large part to help people like us keep our hearts attached and connected. Today we want to begin uh, our study by looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of their son, John. John the Baptist, if you're wondering which John. Uh, And and the Lord uh, opens their lives and their struggles to us. And as he does, the point is for us to see ourselves in them and be reminded of the Lord's call to love him with all our hearts. And my hope as we, as we look at this passage of Scripture today is, is that you really just see this. The Lord wants you to be defined by your love for Him. The Lord wants you to be defined by your love for Him. That should be your legacy, what defines you the most, that you love God above all else. Now, we're going to cover a large portion of Scripture this morning, but I want to try to keep it simple. So really, really, this is all what we want to do. We want to look first at the announcement the angel Gabriel makes about the coming uh, of John the Baptist. And then we want to wrestle with Zechariah as he struggles to believe all that the angel has said. And then finally, we want to look at the birth of John and how Zechariah's doubt gives way to faith and love and praise. And so that's really what we want to do. See the announcement, uh, Zechariah's struggle, and then the birth itself. Um, That's where we're headed. And I'm going to start at verse 5. We'll we'll circle back to those first four verses at the end. Um, But Luke's accounting of the life of Jesus begins with a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Zechariah is not a well-known leader in Jerusalem. He is uh, a local priest in a small town. He and his wife are advancing in years, and they're childless. Now, if that sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah, that's intentional. Uh, The quotations and the allusions to Abraham and Sarah in the first couple chapters of Luke are many. 
They're all over the place. The history of Abraham is mentioned or alluded to many, many times. Uh, and we're, we're meant to, to compare and contrast and think about Zechariah and Elizabeth against the backdrop of Abraham and Sarah. We aren't told too much about them except that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments. Now, this doesn't mean that they were perfect, that they're without sin, as, as we're going to see for sure. What it means to say is that these are two moral and upstanding members in the church. This was that couple in the church that, that everyone looked to with admiration. They just seemed to be so devoted, so committed. They were devout. They were pious. They, they always seemed to do the right thing. And so we want to understand what is, is going on here with them how they are walking after their God. I apologize, but my notes just disappeared. Um, they were followers deeply committed to, Jesus, uh, to, to God. They followed after him. And... They were the ones who knew things. Zechariah is a priest, a follower of, of the word. He studied it. If, if you had questions, he's the one to whom you would go. He's the one to whom you, you'd, you'd follow after and ask those hard questions. He knew what was going on. This is what, who Zechariah and Elizabeth are in the church. Everybody admires them and wants to follow after them. That's what it means. They were blameless and they followed God's commands. And yet, what, we're, what we see in that is an obedience and a knowledge. And those are important, but they're not enough. Obedience can't save you. Knowledge can't save you. As, as Zechariah and Elizabeth are about to discover, something more is needed. Now, it's important to remember their context. Where are we at this point in history? It's been 400 years since the last prophet of Israel spoke, Malachi. And Malachi ends, if you remember, with that, that prophecy that before the, the, the Messiah comes, God would send Elijah and prepare the way and turn the hearts of the children of Israel back to God. And then, after Malachi, nothing. Absolute silence. 400 years of silence. It would be hard in the midst of that silence not to let your mind go to some dark places. Did the prophet make a mistake? Does God remember his promises? Does God remember us? Will he ever make good on his promises? Will, will they ever be fulfilled? Four centuries for perspective, that's 1620 for us if you go back four centuries. That's a wise to be waiting for promises to be fulfilled. 
slowly it's easy to fall into a rhythm and a routine that becomes detached from devotion, from conviction, and from expectation. Now there's an irony here. Zechariah's and Elizabeth's names mean something. Uh, Most names in the Bible mean something, and they're often very important to the stories they get caught up in. And their names are important. Elizabeth's name means God has promised. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And so you hear, Elizabeth and Zechariah, the Lord has promised, the Lord remembers. And you're thinking, does he? (laughs) And the question is, do Zechariah and Elizabeth live up to their names? Do they believe that the Lord has promised and that he remembers? That might be harder to do than you might imagine. 400 years of silence, not a word, not a peep. If God is ever going to send Elijah. Who knows? Because without him, the Messiah, the Deliverer, can't come. And and so it all hangs on that last promise in Malachi. Then Zechariah's time to serve in Jerusalem came. Local priests priests were on a rotation. They would go down and serve in the temple for a short time. Zechariah was chosen by Lot to be the one to go and light the incense, which were visual uh, pictures of the prayers of the people. And so he goes in to light the incense. And as he does, he's alone. And then he's not alone. (laughs) This terrifying angel is standing next to him. And Zechariah is terrified at first. This is the very angel that, that came to Daniel after 70 years of exile. He's dazzling, dazzling, he's terrifying. And yet he comes with good news. He says, God has remembered his promise to, Ze- uh, to Malachi. The time has come to send the, uh, this one in the spirit and the power of Elijah and to turn the hearts of the people back to God, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And this one who will do all of this is going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they are to name him John, which means the Lord has mercy. (laughs) It's wonderful news. This is what they have been waiting for. This is what they've been longing for. The silence has been broken. 400 years of silence gives way. The time for repentance is here. God is going to draw his people back to himself. And you think that that Zechariah would be ecstatic. They'd go running to Elizabeth with the good news. Malachi's been fulfilled in our house. We're going to have a son. Let's read verses 18 through 25. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, they went to his, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The first thing out of Zechariah's mouth was, how shall I know this? And by itself, this isn't a bad question. In fact, uh, this is one of those allusions to Abraham and Sarah. When God promised Abraham that he would have a son in his old age and that a mighty nation would come from him, Abraham asked God, how can I know this? How shall I know this? And it's not a bad question if it's asked with the right heart. With Abraham, that question comes right after we're told Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It it is in the context of faith and belief that Abraham asked God, how will I know this? What he was asking for was a sign as a pledge to seal the promise. Uh, In our language, he was asking God to shake on it or to, to sign the contract. And that was typical. That was acceptable. He was not doubting that God could keep his promise. That's not what Zechariah is asking. Zechariah is filled with doubt. The next thing out of his mouth are the reasons he thinks God can't keep this promise. (laughs) But, But I'm old. And so is my wife. This sort of thing just just doesn't happen. Old people like us don't have children. Zechariah knows the scriptures. He studies them. He labors over them. He he teaches them. He shares them with others. He should know that God opens wombs, even the wombs of old people. Did not Sarah have Isaac when she was 90? Does he not open barren wombs? Rebecca and Rachel, Ruth. Has he not done this time and time before? But there's a disconnect. Zechariah knows God's word. He knows that it's good, but that's not enough. He obeys God's word, and that's good but it's not enough. Something more is is needed. Something here is missing. Before him stands an angel sent from heaven, heralding good news that they have longed to hear for four long centuries. But this news requires that Zechariah let down his guard, his defenses. 
and that he exposed himself to possible heartache. This is a word that he cannot keep at a safe distance. And it's just too scary. The risks are simply too great. And he's unable to let down his guard. He's unable to surrender his heart. And if we are honest, we can relate. It is so easy to sound devote, devoted and, and godly when it comes to the lives of others. Oh, God loves you. God will take care of you. It's, it's easy to sound pious in a Sunday school classroom. What's hard is following the Lord into the unknown. What's hard is opening yourself to potential disappointment and, and heartache. And if you're honest, it is so easy to see yourself in Zechariah. And that's why what happens next is so hard. Without warning, without a second chance, without pleading, Gabriel rebukes Zechariah and takes away his ability to speak. Until that child is born, Zechariah will be given only silence in which to ponder these things. Mirroring those four centuries of, of silence preceding the coming of Elijah, Zechariah will sit in silence until that child is born. And the question's the same. Would he believe? Would he trust God's word? Not just know it, but truly receive it. Would he, would he drop his guard, open his heart, that heart which can't function from a distance, that heart which is all in or all out, would he truly believe God and would he draw near to God in love? Let's skip down in the passage to verses 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosened and he spoke, blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors. And all those things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Nine long months 
of waiting, of silence, and the angel's words came true. Elizabeth, like Sarah before her, welcomed a baby boy into the world in her old age. And eight days later, the friends and neighbors and family were gathered for the circumcision as he was marked out as part of God's family. It was typical at that point that the, the child's name would be revealed. And everyone's expecting the first son to be named after his father. But the angel had said to name him John. And that's exactly what Elizabeth said. He, he shall be called John. The Lord has mercy. That's what his name means. That's what his name is. And confused, they wanted to check with Dad. Well, you know, she's old. She might be a little confused. Forgotten what her husband's name is. And as of yet, he's still not able to speak. I think the question is, does he see this as a fluke and a coincidence, or does he see God at, at work? Will he, will he say, yes, this is what God is doing. God's word is true, and I'm going to respond in faith by naming him what the angel told me to. The question hangs out there. Will he respond in faith? Has he learned his lesson, or will he continue in doubt? Will he open his heart, or will he remain guarded? And he asked for a writing tablet. If this was a made-for-TV movie, the, the, the scene, the, even, even the episode would end here and we'd all be left hanging. What's he going to do? And he writes on the tablet, his name is John. And like that, his mouth is opened. And he's able to speak again. Nine months of silence it was not punishment, it was discipline. The Lord chastised him so that he might learn to open his heart. So that his heart would not remain detached from what he read and claimed to believe. It's really interesting how the angel quotes Malachi. Malachi actually said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, the great and uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But here's what Gabriel said. He says, he, Elijah, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He doesn't quote that second part about the children to their fathers. I don't think he's saying that both are, are not uh, important. I think what he's saying, rather, what's being driven home is that Zechariah, the father, the elder, the parent, the priest, the godly leader, the teacher, the knowledgeable one, Zechariah is going to have to humble himself and learn from his son who is being sent to turn the hearts of Israel to their God. And ultimately, through John, Zechariah's heart will be turned to the greater son, the one John has come to announce. So what does he say as his mouth is opened? He sings a song. 
The final section reads, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, And he was in the wilderness until the day of of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah's song is filled with with blessing and praise. There, There isn't a hint of keeping God at a safe distance. There are so many things that we could look at in this song. And, and indeed, these things are going to be borne out in the months ahead as we study the Gospel of Luke. But I just want to point out a few things this morning. The first is an absolute focus on God's grace and his redemption. Verse 68, God has visited us and redeemed us. It's as if Zechariah is saying, praise God who would not remain at a safe distance. Praise God who loves us and cares for us. Praise God who has sent his salvation. And this all comes down to Jesus Christ, who John has been sent to go before and announce. Because in Jesus, we have forgiveness. In Jesus, we have mercy. And then Zechariah goes on and says that this mercy was promised to our fathers and God has remembered his covenant. You catch that? Promised and remembered. Can you hear it? Elizabeth, God has promised. Zechariah, God has remembered. That's what Zechariah confesses in his song. This this was promised and God has remembered. He has kept his word. It is a sure and a safe word. And he also confesses, the Lord is merciful, which is what his son's name means. John is the one who in fulfillment of the words spoken through Malachi will prepare the way and call the hearts of the children of Israel back to their God. He will make a way of peace known. It's not a road that can be walked from a safe distance with a detached heart because knowledge is good, but it's not enough. It can't save you. Obedience is good. It's important but it can't save you. God wants your heart, your love, 
your absolute commitment, no safe distances, all in, up close, and he'll settle for nothing less. I'd like to close by returning to those first four verses that I just seemed to skip over at the beginning. This account of the life of Jesus is named for the physician who recorded it, Luke. It's probably obvious from the way he begins that he's very well educated. He's very smart. He's meticulous, like you'd expect a doctor to be. In recording the events of Jesus' life, he sets them down, he says, in an orderly fashion. And all of this he did for a man named Theophilus. Again, names mean something. Theophilus literally means God lover. Whether that was really his name or a nickname, it fits Luke's gospel perfectly. Because this book is written so that you might go beyond knowing and being able to recite facts. Dr. Luke has written this, he says, that you might have certainty, conviction, a deep confidence in your very bones. He's written this so that you might go beyond knowledge and a pious life and that you might love God with all your heart. But he knows that you, like Zechariah, deal with the messiness and the worries of life. You deal with the struggle of letting your heart become detached. He knows it's one thing to want to love God with all your heart, and it's an entirely different thing to experience it. And so he's patient, and he wants you, like Zechariah, to learn to listen and to let your heart be stirred beyond safe curiosity into dangerous love. This book is not written for Theophilus alone. It is included in the scriptures, preserved over centuries to rock your world, to draw your heart ever closer to your God and Savior. It's written for you with the hope that its original recipient's name might come to describe you, that you would become more and more a lover of God. Because knowledge is good, but it's not enough. Obedience is good, but it's not enough. God wants your heart. And so let us close by asking the same question that Zechariah asked. How shall we know this? But let us not ask it as as Zechariah did, in doubt. Let us ask as Abraham did, in faith. It's okay to say, Lord, we'd like to see a token, a sign, a pledge, a promise made. Because God has said, I will turn the hearts of my people back to me. He's promised to save all who turn to Jesus in faith. He's 
promise to do these things. And to that he adds a sign, a token, a pledge, a reminder that he has sworn and that he remembers and that he has mercy. The Lord's Supper before us is God's seal on his word, his handshake on on the deal. It's his signature on the line. It's his visible pledge that he will save all who turn to him in humble repentance. It's his reminder that you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to know everything. That his grace is enough and that it belongs to all who draw near to him in faith, who draw near to him in love. So I'd like to ask the elders uh, to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift from our Lord this morning. Well, please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you know our fickle hearts. You know our tendency to keep you at arm's length. How we play with knowledge but guard our hearts. But you have not guarded your heart. You came, you bled, you died, all because you loved us. And so we ask that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would help us to pursue you with abandon, that you would stir up our love for you ever deeper. As we study the book of Luke in the months ahead, we ask that you would use that study so that our hearts and minds and lives might be drawn closer and closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' most perfect and matchless name, amen.